1: December 13th, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, during a roundtable discussion with the state's Surgeon General, Dr. Joseph Ladapo, announced his intention to petition the Florida State Supreme Court to convene a grand jury to investigate what was referred to as wrongdoings as they relate to the COVID-19 vaccines. Just this past week, five out of six justices participating in that ruling have approved his request. Governor DeSantis also announced the formation of a Health Integrity Committee to be overseen by Ladabo that would be comprised of independent medical professionals such as doctors and nurses who would assess public health guidance and recommendations to ensure that these policies are medically and ethically sound and that they are in the best interest of Floridians. You're listening to Nurses Out Loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. I'm your host, Nurse Kimberly Overton. Before we get started today, if you have questions or comments or perhaps you want to share your own experiences with what you're seeing on the front lines of healthcare, you can submit these to any of the hosts by visiting americaoutloud.com forward slash nurses out loud. From there, you can select the name of the nurse you'd like to direct it to from our drop down menu. We would love to hear from you. We encourage all of you to engage in the battle and find your voice in this fight. But until you're able to do that, we will be that voice for you. Joining me today is Dr. Richard Fleming. Dr. Fleming is a physicist, nuclear cardiologist, and attorney who has been working on SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 research since January of 2020. This research has included investigations into the origins of SARS-CoV-2. He has been working diligently in his home state of Texas to see that a grand jury is convened to address the taxpayer funded crimes against humanity that have occurred. But he doesn't stop there. Through his venture at 10letters.org, he encourages all of us to engage in the battle and ensure that those responsible for an illegal gain of function bioweapon that has been deployed upon humanity are held to account. Dr. Fleming, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today.
0: It's my pleasure to be here, Kimberly. Thank you for the invitation.
1: Oh, absolutely. I'm very excited to have you. So in my opening, I talked about Governor DeSantis petitioning the Florida Supreme Court to convene a grand jury. Now I'm grateful to him for taking a bold action when so many are doing nothing at all. But in his announcement, he referred to wrongdoings surrounding the COVID-19 vaccines, but doesn't really specify what that entails. Conversely, when I look at what you've put forth, you detail with great specificity what in your estimation has occurred. Can you talk a little bit about the differences in those approach, the approach that was used?
0: Well, there's major differences. Um, the only thing that's con- that, that is similar is the term grand jury, which is a term that I think a lot of people have heard about but really don't fully understand. Um, the vaccines, that were developed, were developed because of a problem that occurred, and that problem being this virus, this pandemic. And so everything that Americans and people around the world have been dealing with for the last almost 36 months, three years now, is the result of viruses that were gain of function, designed and built in violation of federal law of state law, and of U.S. constitutional treaty agreements. Now, what Governor DeSantis is wanting to do is to address just the vaccine issue, and I certainly understand that because there's been a lot of consequences of the vaccine, but the vaccines take on a completely different, uh, nefarious issue and light once you understand why we have them to begin with and what they are a copy of, which is a biological viral weapon. So all the the governor can do is just say, and and we're hoping that some of this is the result of the number of Floridians who have already sent in letters to both the governor and the attorney general uh, of Florida, along with other states, but Florida and Texas by far lead the rest of the country. 10letters.org, although California and Illinois and Ohio are coming hot on the heels so, uh, uh, in, in in people responding and wanting their attorney generals and governors to be held legally uh, accountable to the, elect, uh, the people who elected them. Mm-hmm. But the, the vaccines themselves can be looked at not so much as a criminal action, even though a lot of people have been harmed and hopefully we'll have a, an opportunity to touch those numbers that are significant. But the actual crimes were the viruses that were developed, and I say viruses because the PCR data is very clear in the work that we've done in, in sorting this out. So three different viruses that were engineered by people that weren't naturally occurring, those people got their monies from a lot of places, but most importantly, the United States government, and did research to do what's called gain-of-function, to take viruses that naturally occur and to change those to make something more infective and more dangerous, more harmful. And that led us down this rabbit hole, if you will, of consequences, of uh, quarantining, of masking, of uh, manipulation of the, the medical paradigm and what's used for treatments, what isn't. And I think most alarmingly to many Americans uh, are the vaccine, uh, the drug vaccine biologics or the genetic vaccines, however you feel comfortable calling them. Um, and and those are two completely different problems. Once you understand and wrap your brain around the fact that we're here because of uh, people who committed crimes, and illegally built biological viral weapons, these viruses that we call SARS-CoV-2. You know, by having a term, everybody's kind of presumed, or probably the best term is assumed, that it's one virus, where the data shows it was clearly uh, probably at least three that they took credit for. You know, that is COVID-19 a bioweapon, that book that I wrote and published in, in Uh, 2021 lays out in detail uh, for anybody reading it, where the monies came from, what the research entailed, what viruses were generated, and the two patents that that are applicable to it. Once you recognize that they intentionally and knowingly were doing this research, very important from from a legal perspective for a crime and you realize that it's in violation of the Biological Weapons Convention Treaty, a treaty the United States signed in 1975 and has repeatedly violated. Um, Once you realize that it's in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 175, which was passed uh, as a part of the Bioterrorism Act, um, once you realize That at the state level, the crimes that have been committed by these people are murder for the intentional annoying part or attempted murder if they didn't die. Manslaughter, if you want to say that, well, they didn't intentionally annoyingly knew they were going to kill people. Okay, so recklessly they they behaved. Uh, Assault, threatening people, battery, physical harm, coercion, pressure placed on people whether they wanted to be vaccinated or not. False imprisonment, because many people were quarantined to their homes and limited to where they could really go, and and they hadn't committed a crime. So false imprisonment, uh, a variety of crimes. I mean, the list is not a short list. Yeah, right.
1: medical kidnapping that, as well. We've seen we've seen um, much of that.
0: You know, um, yeah. I mean, Cruisen uh, v. Uh, Missouri, uh, which is a well-known case that the Supreme Court of the United States ruled on uh and stated no american citizen could be forced to accept a treatment that they did not want to accept mm-hmm. and we've all heard the arguments for how they're trying to get around it and as an attorney i you know i i could go into it as a defense attorney for them and i could make i think quite solid arguments that they would get away with all, all the things that they had done until you demonstrate that it is all the result of their criminal actions in the development of these biological viral weapons. Once you accept that, once you are able to wrap your brain around that, once you deal with the uncomfortableness that this was done primarily by US taxpayer dollars, primarily by Americans, not solely by Americans, but primarily by Americans, um, doing something that was criminally wrong, once you realize that those nucleotide bases, that genetic code sequence that they change to make these viruses, are encoding for the same thing in the in the uh, genetic vaccines, now those vaccines can be tagged to a real crime. And I, you know, you don't have to be a physicist or a nuclear cardiologist or attorney to understand that if the viruses were criminal actions, then genetically coding for it and just putting it in a syringe to inject it into people is also a criminal action. And that changes the dynamics of how I think a jury, and particularly a grand jury, the people that are supposed to look at the criminal evidence and say, yes, there's a crime here. It looks like a crime has been committed and these people need to be taken to court and it's important to understand that regular attorneys like myself can't file criminal charges on people we can file civil charges but civil is about money and right. money is not going to change what's happened I, you know that this philosophy that money solves everything money will not bring back the 1.1 million dead americans that have died from the disease that i first talked about in 1994, when I laid out this an inflammation and blood clotting reaction that occurs that causes heart disease and strokes and cancer and high blood pressure and diabetes and, and all the problems that we've seen uh, for the last three years. Money is not going to bring back those 1.1 1, 1. 1 million people, which, by the way, are the same number of soldiers that the United States has lost in military conflicts since we've been a country. Wow. And we've been fighting all but 18 years. The the vaccine adverse event data shows one and a half million harmed, maimed Americans. And that's you're going now, off of the
1: the VAERS database. Yes,
0: just just off so, that database. And that's and, what, and we, we know that's
1: only about one percent reporting. So,
0: but Kimberly, it doesn't matter whether yeah. it's one percent or ten well, percent. It's catastrophic. It's catastrophic. If one and a half million is not something you can look at as an individual and say, wow, let me tell you what that one and a half million is. It's more injuries than the United States military has sustained injuries in combat since this country has existed. And 32,000 deaths, accepted deaths. Nobody's quarreling about this, right? You don't have to worry about whether we want to add one or two zeros behind it. You don't need to go to an extrapolation of an argument when the argument itself is sound. 32,000 deaths or more deaths than the United States military has lost in every war we have fought except our five bloodiest wars. And we lose more people every week from COVID then we lost at pearl harbor or twin towers do you know everyone go ahead
1: I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I just I would really love to touch on this with you because, you know, the reason I left bedside nursing, I left when I became uncomfortable mm-hmm. with protocols that were being used in the hospital, specifically remdesivir, um, you know, because they kept telling us that COVID was killing all of our patients. And, you know, we, we were seeing our patients get sicker and sicker. Um, and it's really my feeling that it's not actually COVID itself that's killing them, but the remdesivir. Uh, that was was leading to their untimely death. And I'm talking about in healthy, otherwise healthy individuals, not individuals with comorbidities or anything like that. Yeah. Um, these were healthy, young, healthy individuals. And with the remdesivir, you know, we're seeing clearly that this medication was doing more harm than it was good. It's an antiviral. We all know it's not gonna be effective um, by the time they get to us in their symptomatic <laughs> phase of the virus so i I kept questioning why are we using this medication it's clearly doing more harm than good and particularly when we had medication that was showing our real promise and being effective in um, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine but i left when i became uncomfortable because of that but what are your thoughts on do you think it was the virus itself or do you think it's the remdesivir because or not just the remdesivir specifically just the complete medical mismanagement of covid Because honestly, the only place that anyone was dying were in our hospitals. We weren't pulling bodies from homes. We weren't pulling bodies off of the streets. They're all dying in our hospitals. So what are are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, let me take you back a little through history. In 1976, I joined American Heart as the youngest faculty member ever. And as a result of that, I got put on several committees, one of which was the Physician Cluster Education Committee. And I spent decades educating the medical community and the non-medical community about what produces heart disease. And in the end, in 1994, I, I, after looking at a lot of the data, not only from the U.S., but around the world, I came out with a theory at, and presented it at American Heart. It's an inflammation and blood clotting or inflammatory thrombotic response theory. That stated, quite simply, first heart disease, and then most of the diseases that people die from—again, strokes, high blood pressure, cancer, diabetes—these are all inflammatory, thrombotic, or inflammation and blood clotting diseases. In 1994, I presented probably what was considered heresy. I mean, I know it was. I was on the committees. Um, this new theory that explained that viruses and bacteria also added to this inflammation of blood clotting and left untreated would kill people from heart disease and strokes and diabetes and cancer and the others. So when SARS-CoV-2 hit and in January of 2020, I started doing my research about, okay, what, what do we know? What treatments may or may not work? and put together a national clinical trial and ran it uh, with 1,800 patients, 1,800 patients, um, and looked at the different drugs and used a method that I patented. I provided it free. It's an imaging uh, tool that can actually quantify changes inside the body as opposed to just visually looking for something. So we could use that approach to measure the effects of the drugs in in people both infected, quote, SARS-CoV-2, and with the inflammatory thrombotic disease, which is known as coronavirus disease, first detected in 2019, or COVID-19. And when these viruses, and in this instance, get advanced enough footing. <clears throat> that they're causing this inflammation and blood clotting. People die if that's not treated. And so the reason why so many people died is because first off, a lot of people just gave lip service to the theory that they'd heard that I introduced in 94 and and you know forgot the thrombosis part and just started talking about inflammation and cytokines and didn't treat that. And as a, as a result, people who had worse infections and certainly people who had already other inflammatory thrombotic, quote, comorbidities did worse. The problem is, is for remdesivir, and we did look at remdesivir, we measured the effect of remdesivir, is that the inflammation and blood clotting caused by the virus is the same type of damage that is caused by remdesivir. And, you know, people, it's easy to get caught up in that trap. Anthony Fauci got caught up in that trap when he was talking about hydroxychloroquine and problems with rhythms of the heart because the infection and the inflammatory thrombotic response itself can cause those rhythm disturbances to the heart. So Fauci fell prey to it on one side and Dermidisavir fell prey to it on the other side. And the problem is, is that if you have two things happening simultaneously that can cause the same reaction, you can't split it out. You can't separate it out. Now, we did look at remdesivir, and we published that research, and it is going to be republished here soon in a, in a uh, protocol format that we had. I, I just, in fact, today sent the final galley proof back for them to publish. It's been recognized in the Green Journal of Internal Medicine. Um, it was presented on the 8th of uh, October by myself at the American Society of Nuclear Cardiology Conference, where we showed the impact of all of these drugs, and including remdesivir, which had a 28.1% success rate. Now, I think that's significant for a couple of reasons. Uh, first off, if you have a drug that can make you better, stay the same or get worse, that's a 33 and a third percent if you're going to use percentage, which means that it actually underperformed chance. The second thing that we saw that I think was very critical that you don't hear anybody talking about because either people aren't reading the research or they just don't know, is that when uh, remdesivir was combined with interferon alpha 2 uh, beta or with map. so drugs that interfere with the replication of the virus or the inflammatory thrombotic response, people actually get worse, which, again, you don't hear anybody talking about it, even though I've published it. It's out there. Um, so those are all things to be taken into consideration. If if you have both the disease and the treatment causing the same type of and yeah. that outcome it's hard to split it out but what is compelling is that when we measured the data it it underperformed chance um and you know one would expect it to the the similar approaches to HIV were dismal um the uh, protease inhibitors for HIV and I was a medical student when HIV hit um, they're really good memories of HIV uh, from the research that we were doing. So it's not my, my first go round with this, these types of problems. But, you know, the protease inhibitors were actually caused more harm than good. And yet, you know, we, we hear Paxlovid uh, being touted as a, as a drug and it causes the same type of devastating effect. And, you know, that's a good friend of mine, Montagn- Professor Luz Montagnier, and I were looking at that prior to his death where we were sorting out uh, the problems and the ramifications of Paxilovit. But we haven't measured it at tissue level. We do know what it, what these protease inhibitors do. They actually make the disease work in the end. So, and the ventilators, um, despite the fact, and on FlemingMethod.com, I think of the 4,750 papers that I have waiting to show prosecutors, um, the uh, I, I have 430 of them, I think, on FlemingMethod.com on my website of papers. And uh, amongst those papers, uh, not only are the EUAs for the vaccines, which show that they don't statistically reduce people getting sick, um, are, are the are the data uh, pieces that were there on the back on the ventilators. And how to correctly use a ventilator in people that had, you know, acute respiratory distress syndrome or this inflammatory fluid in their lungs, which is what these patients had.
1: You know, I I, I didn't want to believe that we were potentially murdering patients <clears throat> in the hospital, and I know that every time I say it, I almost feel like I sound insane when I say it, but I that is my belief.
0: No, you, you yeah. I mean, the problem is. Um, first off, medicine and science got hijacked in this process. And oh, yeah. I've used that term for a while now. And I think people are beginning to accept that. Um, the the mentality was completely different. I mean, again, um, I was a medical student uh, when HIV hit. And it, as a cardiologist, I was trained by people like Jeff Schooley and Michael DeBakey. And not in my wildest imagination, would i or they have considered allowing us to to, to tell us how to treat patients that's just mm-hmm. not how this is done but once once we take them to task for the criminal actions of developing these viruses i think the confusion that some people many people have about that whether something's right or wrong that changes we, you know we've looked at this we've asked people Okay, um, if this virus was naturally occurring, which is the premise of many, many people, right? Uh, Despite the evidence, then there's a toss up in people's minds about wrongdoing. But, and again, we've tested this, we've checked this out, we've done focus groups with people. If you knew that this was a criminal action that led to this, now what would you think about it now the mind shift of people think uh how they think about this shifts considerably and and soon this third paper uh that that has been accepted that we're we will clear the galleys on here um we did research back from september to november of last year um that some people have tried to kind of get credit for here recently Um, but what we did is we, we, we took blood from vaccinated people and unvaccinated people from people who'd been infected and people who hadn't been infected. And we added, um, we looked at their blood initially. We added normal saline to it. We added atropine to it. So a drug that we would normally see for cardiac drugs, we added domitor, which is an anesthetic. So drugs that would normally get in your bloodstream and it didn't do anything to the blood, but in every one of these individuals, then when we added the Pfizer vaccine or the Moderna vaccine or the Janssen vaccine, which is one people frequently call Johnson Johnson, but it's actually Janssen's company, and we added that to the blood, what happened is that the red blood loses its red color and begins to clot. So um, we have known for some time, and it's, again, the, the papers are on Fleming Method if you want to go scroll to find them that when genetic sequences either rna or dna are outside of a cell they act like a prion they they damage proteins and and they permanently damage proteins and so uh the hemoglobin which is a protein structure of the of the red blood cells the erythrocyte when they're when it's exposed to either these pre-vaccine biologics um is damaged permanently damaged it's no longer able to to uh pick up oxygen because if the cells could pick up oxygen they would stay red and there's plenty of air and oxygen in the air for them to do that and they don't do that and they form this inflammatory thrombotic response that i've been talking about since 1994 so all of that you know and and it's taken us a year and a half a little bit more than a year i guess to get it published of which Two of the major journals that we submitted it to said, well, if they, if they accepted it for publication, it would cause everybody to question whether they should get vaccinated, um, which was, I think, the point as a research scientist that I had in mind, which is Houston, we have a problem. There's an awful lot of blame to go around by with a lot of people. But the only way we're going to get there is to uh, go after the gain of function, because that's the criminal action and everything else is a consequence that had there been no initial criminal action, you could make a really solid argument for uh, they were doing the best they could. Um, and, and you know, and we can all disagree with whether we think they did a really good job. I mean, I do that all the time in medicine. Um but you know, we we did hit some all time highs for uh, bad interference of things um, this go round,
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree. And you know, the, I was being the,
0: really politically nice on that.
1: Yeah, I know. Sometimes we have to be right. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, we've got a lot to dig in and unpack here. To, uh, but I'm going to tell you America out loud talk radio plays on the iHeart radio network. And you can also listen on our media player from any web browser anywhere in the world. We have the best in class apps available on Apple, Android, Alexa, 24 seven, great talk radio. All of our shows go to podcast the following day. You can hear them on apps such as Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeart podcast, and many more. Be sure to subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts for me. We'll catch you on the other side of this break. Stay with us. It's time, and this is world. Hey, everyone, Nurse Kimberly here. I want to tell you about these amazing products from Genesis. I am loving the UX4 Stationary HOCL Atomizer. Now don't be fooled by its sleek design because this machine packs a powerful punch. It uses an ultrasonic atomization technique to create a dry mist that turns into droplets and gas, delivering active ingredients throughout the room. And when you add an HOCL cleaning solution, it is effective in reducing 99.99% of germs and allergens. The hypochlorous is the body's first line of defense in response to injury and infection. It is 100 times more effective than chlorine bleach at killing pathogens such as bacteria, viruses, mold, and mildew. It's hypoallergenic, non-toxic, non-cytotoxic, and safe for use around children, pets, and plants. Now more than ever, it is so important to be sure that we are disinfecting the surfaces in our homes and in the air that we breathe. But constantly wiping down surfaces can be time-consuming and costly the set it and forget it technology of the UX4 makes it a perfect fit for our busy lives. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see videos of these products in action. Be sure to use promo code out loud to save 15% off either the Fogger or the Atomizer. Thanks Genesis for helping me to keep my home safe and disinfected.
0: We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger. But sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. We are fighting the ultimate fight between good and evil. AmericaOutLoud.com replaces groupthink with innovative think. Well, it was Walt Whitman, the poet, who said keep your face always toward the sunshine, and shadows will fall behind you. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all.
1: Welcome back to Nurses Out Loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. I'm your host, Nurse Kimberly Overton. Wherever you're listening from today and whatever you're doing, I thank you for giving me the gift of your time. Let's jump right back in. We've been talking with Dr. Richard Fleming. Dr. Fleming, I know that for myself, being a nurse, and as someone who is prone to critical thinking, I had questions from very early on in this pandemic, very early on, because absolutely nothing that we were doing made any sense, you know, when they had us deploying policies that really flew in the face of logic, reasoning, absolutely not rooted in science, I started to realize that there was something very wrong. Was it the same for you? And and what was your first indication that we were dealing with a much larger agenda?
0: Well, you know, in January of 2020, when I became aware, along with the rest of you, that there was a new viral issue going on. For me as a research scientist, and this is completing year 54, um, soon to start 55, my impression of the way in which this was being discussed and looked at, um, concerned me because I was not hearing the types of questions being raised and discussions being raised as to how we should approach this. And one one of the things, uh, you know, for people who work in hospitals or work in in, in medical settings, you know, it's very clear that. We tend to uh, talk with each other frequently, uh, curb sighting, uh is the term for the general public, um, when we have a question about patients or what's going on. And I think one of the first things that uh, really struck my mind was there really wasn't any curb sighting going. There wasn't, uh, you know, I mean, no, nobody had a good handle on this, but nobody was asking questions of anybody else or having the types of discussions that we that we normally do, um, and I've, I've I've given a number of presentations where I've been up on stage, and I'm sure what it looks like is me arguing with with you know uh, medical colleagues, um, but it is an exchange uh, that is going on uh, that we haven't seen for the vast majority of what's happened. Most everybody has basically been told what to do. And how to do it, but not to question what's going on, um, as if um, as if if you weren't in a federal agency, you had lost any uh, cognitive ability to reason through something and 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 get to the bottom of it. Now. My, my take as a PhD, MD, JD, as I always kind of tell people is PhDs solve problems, MDs treat problems and JDs cause problems. <laughs> so oh I, I'm, I'm very sensitive to the perspective that as, as a PhD, my, my take on problems are different. I'm, I'm much more uh, scientifically analytically driven to try to find answers to things. And as I was setting up our research, which frankly took me, uh, we, we got rolling in, in early April of 2020. Um, and once uh, shortly thereafter, but it took me that amount of time to really put together a national clinical trial and, and to do it in a way that we were comparing drugs and combining drugs when appropriate um, and really measuring Measuring outcomes, and I was not seeing that type of discussion, particularly uh, given all the talk about you know doing a national clinical trial, an NCT, the way that you know I would argue as an academic that we should be doing it. You know, we didn't have a shortage of patients uh, by any stretch of the imagination, so uh, that clearly wasn't a problem. And I wasn't seeing that happen, and I wasn't really impressed, frankly. Um, with most of my medical and uh, nursing and respiratory and, and colleagues in, in the way that they were responding. I saw more of a sense of panic. And I thought, you know, I, re- I remember, again, HIV hit, hitting as a, as a medical student. And we didn't have that same sense of panic, even though our perception was if you got this HIV virus, and you started to become symptomatic, you would probably die. Um, and that really was not uh, the the mindset going this time with with this virus that was easily transmitted um, but not viewed as deadly. So that was a bit mind-boggling for me to uh, try to understand why this intelligent systematic was not being taken. Um, it was it was re- really disconcerting to see um, and and very simplistic thinking. I I guess I'm going to add uh, from from my perspective of, of jumping straight to a vaccine. I have no problem with these things being done parallel, you know, at the same time. But to my impression was the concept of treating people, which is what was needed was being abandoned and everything was being set out for how rapidly can we generate a vaccine
1: um every, every physician i talked to they they think that's the only way that was that would been just hammered into their head that the only way forward and i got that actual answer from three of my physicians that this is the only way out of this. it sounded very scripted when they would tell it to me
0: um right And and as somebody who, as an academic, who actually has, you know, teaches medical students and interns and residents and fellows, I'm trying to figure out where the heck that idea came from, because it's certainly not something I teach.
1: Um,
0: I mean, I teach, you have to do more than one thing at a time. If you can't, you just really go find another job. Um, So I have, I have no problem with research efforts being put in for vaccines. I, I have a problem with abandoning what are we doing for the people right now that are sick. Um, and, and, you know, yeah, you didn't have to be really intelligent on this. When you have people that come in with breathing problems, um, and you don't treat them for that breathing problem, you know, it raises that question of what, what happened? You know, did we all just get lobotomized somewhere along the way? Yeah. Um, I mean, I didn't think that what I put together was that overly complicated, and I've heard people attack the paper because they just didn't like the outcome and the results, and that's fine. But I've also, let me tell you, when we presented this at NASNIC uh, in October, I didn't get a single doctor look at me um, during the presentation and say, well, that can't be right. These drugs don't work. I got a response of, oh, wow look at that, <laughs> measured outcome, I I guess these drugs work. Um, okay. And, you know, which is helpful, I think, because it shows that not everybody underwent a lobotomy um, in in 2020. But the, and maybe I'm just a skeptic right now, because I was raised old school. I mean, uh, you know, I, I came uh, so the group, uh, I came through what I consider a golden decade of, of, of medicine um, because the group of doctors before me simply told you what to do and you did it. And the group of doctors after us said, well, I, I can't tell you what to do. It's up to you. And said, why do you think you went to medical college? You know, um, my group was, well, let us tell you what's going on, what the data shows. And then we're going to tell you what you should do. And if you choose not to do that, well, that's on you, but we're at least going to tell you because we're the ones with the training. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's not what I saw. What, I, what I've seen way too often now is a group of what I consider um, relatively um, cuddled, uh positions because, you know, our working hours were longer. Our attitude was different. It was get to the bottom of it. You know, we're responsible. I mean, my introduction was um, uh, at Iowa. The, the second thing that we were told is that 90% of what we'd be taught was wrong. But that was a state of medicine at the time. And for those of us who are research oriented, please go research things and advance the science. But we were taught to question everything and everyone. I mean, we were taught to question our attending uh it's you definitely know not first, first, um first first month on, on cardiology as a third year student um i heard a murmur and i stood my ground and the intern didn't hear and i was a third year medical student intern didn't hear it resident didn't hear it fellow didn't hear it the attending didn't hear and i said well i heard it and the attending uh finally put his stethoscope on the patient's chest and opened up the earpieces and said here listen and I listened to it and I I went I, I don't hear a murmur and he started to walk off and I put my stethoscope to the chest and then opened up the earpieces and said well here and he put his head between my earpieces and and listened for a moment and then he looked at me and he says okay so there's a murmur you know and walked off and he was sick but um the the reality is we were taught never ever ever to take anybody's word for it not that we're we're, we're distrustful but that we were taught doctor that's your patient and in the end this, this attitude of well you know i'm doing this because so-and-so said to do it we we that was unacceptable thinking um if my patients die on my watch it's going to be because I did everything I could Im- imaginably do. I mean, I will tell you, I, I, I'll give you an example of a patient of a lady that I took care of once who came in and we did, um, uh, she had chest discomfort and we did the standard nuclear test and we did my method, which was still a research in those days. And my, my method showed no heart disease, but the standard method that's commonly employed found heart disease and she went in to get a cardiac cast and did not have any, any problems. However, when they were in doing the cardiac cast, they, they, they caused one of her coronary arteries to, uh, spasm and she had a massive MI and she ended up on a balloon pump in the days following treatment of her, I did everything I could humanly imagine and I remember coming into the intensive care unit where she was extubated. She was off the ventilator. She was sitting up. You know, I walked in and I went, I, I was dumbfounded. Um, and the nurses came up to me and hugged me and said, you saved your life. And I had to look at him. I said, I, I've got to be honest with you. I, I have no idea where this woman is is extubated. I mean, yes. Did I throw everything imaginable at her? I did some of it I thought was a good idea, but I, you know, I just looked at him and said, I, I, I can't take credit for this. I just, um, I'm just dumbfounded. But what I didn't do was take the attitude of, well, she's going to die and I'm just not going to do anything. I did everything I could imagine, uh, including research drugs at the time. And, and she, you know, she just, Um, And she she had Down syndrome, and and, uh, so she was just, I mean, she was a sweet 20-something, late 20-something woman, uh, and her family was just ecstatic. But, you know, the the reality was I didn't give up on the patient, and I didn't say, well, she's going to die, bad outcome, so sad, too bad, because this is a real human being that the end result was going to be 100% for her. It was going to affect her family 100%. Um, and, and that's how you have to look at it. And by the way, uh, on, on a completely different note, one of the stupidest things I think we did was to keep the families from getting into the hospitals because I'm a firm believer, and I've put some of these papers on, on FlemingMethod.com under those published papers, that there are things that family does for a patient that I cannot do. And my father, when he had his bypass operation, uh, was not coming out under anesthesia. Uh, he was just really, I thought we were getting worried. And uh, my my then wife was pregnant with our first child and I leaned over and I kissed him on the forehead and I said, this is from Stephanie. And the moment I did that, he came to life, yeah. completely unresponsive before. So that component of why people want to live and that that wanting to be there for their family, no nobody in medicine or nursing or anything else can give that to a patient like a family can. And to prevent that from happening in these hospital settings, um, you want to talk about something that probably had one of the biggest devastating effects I would argue that was much more damaging than remdesivir.
1: Oh, I I 100% agree with you. And I have said from the beginning, you know, the the nurses should have stood up. We should have stood up the moment that they told us that our patients could not have an advocate at their side and their family members at their side. We should have stood up and said no, because I really feel like we could have done more to stop what has happened. It was you're right. I think that was the most devastating part of all of this. Because I mean, what happens when we we lose that um, that will to live to fight, and what happens when we um, isolate people? You know that drops their immune response. We all know that. So it's you know these these things that are are happening. They were they were just so catastrophic, and it really didn't need to be this way. And I wish that the nurses had stood up and and fought back harder on that one. That is what we're supposed to be doing. But, you know, we've also not
0: not just the nurses, the doctors should have been doing that, too. I mean, we should have been everybody in that hospital should have been going, including the the people cleaning the hospital should have been saying, look, families come in. We've always let families come in, even in the most critically ill patients in the CCU or SICU or, or or general medicine CCU they've always had a couple hours during the day and and we've done that knowing that what you're going to see is is not maybe a pleasant experience but also knowing you need that time as a family member and the patient needs that contact
1: it was it was absolutely deplorable what we saw but you know we we've also we've seen a sharp increase in in adverse events that have been reported since the rollout of the COVID mrna injections now you know many many find themselves vaccine injured some have died from these shots you know and the numbers are expected to grow exponentially as boosters there are continuing to be offered despite the obvious harm i mean the evidence is in right it couldn't be clearer these shots are long on risk with virtually zero benefit do you see an end in sight or a scenario where they will finally stop the insanity and pull these products off the market
0: yeah, the end in sight is, is the 10 letters dot or campaign, which is to take these criminals to task for the development of these viruses that have violated the Biological Weapons Convention Treaty. They have violated 18 U.S.C. section 175. They have violated state laws for the harm to people, for murder, for manslaughter, for assault. Once these people, the thing that's going to take them to task <clears throat> is being held criminally accountable, criminally accountable for the crimes that they have committed and shocking everybody back into reality and and pointing out that the reason why we're here is because they manipulated viruses that should not have been manipulated. They, They produced a pandemic. They didn't own up to the pandemic. And then they interfered with everything that was being done to address the pandemic and took everybody on a wild goose chase uh, down this this vaccine pathway. And bear in mind, they are already, I don't know if you've seen this or not, if, you're, if your listeners have seen this, but they are recruiting the elderly, you know, people over 65. So um, <laughs> That's what they're calling elderly. So I'm just going uh, to chuckle with that and go, yeah, okay, that's fine. Whatever you want to call that. Um, but people over 65, to participate because science needs you. That's their slogan. Science needs you to participate in a new, by Pfizer, mRNA vaccine for influenza because the virus is changing and so can you. Now, I don't know if that was a bad choice of words, but somebody should be checking with their ad campaign because it was either an extremely bad choice of words or very telling I was not under the impression that the approach that we'd been using for the influenza vaccines currently were so devastating that we were losing so many people that we had to come up with a new approach for doing it, especially an approach that has failed at cancer, because for your listeners, for five to 10 years, they've been using this approach to try to deal with cancers, and there's not a single cancer drug out there yet using mRNA or DNA technology using these vectors, these either these lipid nanoparticles or the adenovirus, both of which, by the way, go to FlemingMethod.com. We've shown causes inflammatory flammal disease, even if there's no RNA or DNA in the vaccine. So <clears throat> the very mechanism they're using to try to do this causes the types of harm that we're seeing. Um, but they're not going to stop until they are forced to stop and the only way they're going to be forced to stop is if the American public goes to 10letters.org, sends in, you know, takes 90 seconds of their life to fill in the forms, download the cover letter for the governor and the attorney general of their state, and then download the indictment letter, which has all the links that they need, and send it in to their attorney general and their governors <clears throat> to tell them that you want them to convene a grand jury to hold these criminals accountable. And I guarantee you that the first attorney general who files this is going to put a real serious kink into everything that they've been doing because right now they're not being held accountable. So they are continuing on. They're continuing to fund Peter Daszak and EcoHealth and the tune of 650,000 this year, Boston and Florida continue to manipulate, uh, uh, the viruses, uh, as they've already demonstrated. The nuclear threat initiative has been played out to do a gain-of-function monkeypox virus by a rogue nation to determine what it is that's needed to get Americans to just acquiesce to a no-regrets approach. So whatever they tell us to do, we will do. And their newest launch of this little uh, uh, mRNA vaccine for influenza the virus is changing and you can too. Now, up until now, I thought that the human immune system was doing a pretty good system. But if we keep messing around with it, the the research is very clear. I've gone through this multiple times that these vaccines actually impair the human immune system. And it's been shown specifically for the influenza vaccine. You want them stopped, You have to come forward, there's not gonna be a cavalry if the American people will not become their own cavalry. And 10letters.org gives you the horse to mount to be a part of that cavalry.
1: Exactly, and I'll tell you, we do appreciate all of your efforts. We at Nurse Freedom Network are going to launch a campaign uh, and with the uh, 10letters.org, we're gonna put a, a call to action to our followers, our listeners. We will um, put that out there and make that accessible. It's You've made it very, very easy for the American people to do their due diligence in this. So we will certainly do everything we can uh, to stand with you on that. You know, I've just recently launched a PMA alongside of our 501c3. And you know, under that umbrella, we've launched Remnant Nursing. We're providing concierge nursing services with a focus on guiding our clients to optimal immune health. We believe that this is gonna be our best defense against COVID-19 or any other virus we might see in the future. And the writing is on the wall for what is coming down the pike. As we now see with the announcement of a new tabletop exercise surrounding the outbreak of Sears or a severe epidemic enterovirus respiratory syndrome brought to us by John Hopkins, the WHO, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, what could possibly go wrong? And this is similar to what was done in 2019 with event 201, which seemingly correctly predicted an outbreak of a novel coronavirus. The difference with the Sears is that this is estimated to kill up to 15 million children. Now, as more and more of our population are vaccinated with unending boosters, it is clear that immune systems are being destroyed. The CDC is set to add this experimental mRNA shot to the childhood vaccine schedule, which would certainly lend to credibility to that theory that large populations of children will die as a result of a virus. Sadly, even after everything we have been through over these last three years, we haven't seen anything yet. 2020 was just a dress rehearsal for what's to come brace yourselves. But remember, we are not alone. Dr. Richard Fleming, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. And that's all the time we have for today, friends. But remember, we are here on the air five days a week, Monday through Friday at 10am Eastern with a different nurse host daily. And you can catch the encore at 11pm Eastern Standard Time. Please be sure to tune in to myself and my amazing sister nurses. As we walk you through all of these hot topics, we will empower you with information and education. We will advocate and we will stand in the gap for you because we are nurses and this is what we do. I'm your host, Nurse Kimberly Overton, and you can find me here every Wednesday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern. Until next time, be safe, be well, and God bless. Be sure to make AmericaOutloud.com your daily stop for all of the latest news and happenings. We all must do our part and share the stories, the articles, the podcasts and videos so we can help secure America's future. Tune in tomorrow at 10 a.m. Eastern as I hand off the baton to Nurse Michelle. We are in a war for the truth. We're putting out a bounty on the real misinformation and exposing the purveyors of propaganda. Join us weekdays with a different nurse host daily no topic is off limits as we shine our lights and expose the darkness it's time and this see- is